Hi, and welcome to Small Business Success with Steve Strauss. I'm Steve Strauss, small business columnist for USA Today, author of the Small Business Bible, and host of the website, theselfemployed.com. Are you looking for small business success? Well, what are we waiting for? Let's get started. As always, this week's show is brought to you by our friends at Greatland, the W-2 and 1099 tax specialists. It's tax season, and our friends at Greatland have a great offer for us. You can save 15% on any W-2 or 1099 filing product right now if you use the code V12 at checkout. So go to greatland.com, use the code V12, get 15% off. Welcome or welcome back to Small Business Success. I am your host, Steve Strauss. Glad to be with you again today. And we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, startups. I'm going to be telling you in a new segment that we're introducing today called Before You Heard of Them about a product that you know that you've used many times, but the story of how that product came to be is really quite amazing. And you're going to find out uh, what happened before you heard of them. After that, we have a great interview lined up with my friend and the great entrepreneur, Tim Berry. Tim is uh, the maker of Business Plan Pro, which is a fantastic business planning software. Uh, he owns Palo Alto Software. He's into social media these days. And if anyone's going to tell us how to succeed uh, in a new business, it is Tim Berry. So stick around and find out what happened before you heard of them and then how to make your business as successful as Tim's. Well, we've all heard of the big brands, Apple, Coca-Cola, Microsoft, Nike. They're big names, big brands now. But what about before we knew them? Almost every one of those huge companies started out with a small entrepreneur with a unique novel idea. What is their story? What happened before you heard of them? In today's segment, we're going to share a story of a product you've probably used Many times. As World War II got underway, Japan began to attack its Asian neighbors. And many of those countries produced rubber. Now, at that time, the United States depended on a lot of those rubber imports for all sorts of things. Not just tires, but especially as the war got underway, boots, uh, airplane tires, gas masks. Rubber is used for all these different things. So at that time, the American War Productions Board put out a call to various industries to try and create a synthetic rubber. In 1943, General Electric assigned one of its engineers, a guy by the name of James Wright, to work on the development of a chemically synthetic, all-purpose rubber alternative. Now, Wright experimented with all sorts of combinations before he finally combined boric acid and silicon oil. The two compounds solidified into kind of a gummy goop inside of his test tube. Then he accidentally dropped some of the substance on the ground, and it bounced. Now, he soon noticed that there were other strange properties in the stuff that he began to call GUP, G-U-P-P. The new substance stretched farther than rubber. It had 25% greater reboundability than uh, rubber when bounced against a hard surface. It was able to withstand molds and decay, all sorts of temperature extremes. It didn't decompose. And most curiously, it could take any shape If you applied pressure on it too quickly, it would pull, but really quickly, and it would snap. 
Now, despite these really unique and uh, peculiar attributes, the substance was not a substitute for rubber. It stretched and it uh, didn't come back to form. So although GUP was interesting, uh, it was just kind of considered an in-house oddity uh, inside of General Electric. And it was going to end up languishing in GE for a couple years as the war went on and went on. But eventually, in 1945, as the war wound down, GE decided that it had to do something with this unique substance that it had created. So it sent samples of GUP to scientists and engineers all over the world, hoping that someone would find some practical use for it. But no one did. So again, it sat on the shelves. The substance was an oddity with really no known usefulness, but it was too interesting to just throw away. So a few years after the war, finally, it was then that somebody came up with some use for the stuff. It happened in Boston. There, a Harvard physicist who had been sent some of the stuff earlier decided to bring it out on a lark to bring to his cocktail party that he was having and share it with his guests. Something interesting for them to talk about. So as the bizarre clump of stuff was sent around and people were pulling on it, uh, an out-of-work, destitute uh, ex-copywriter by the name of Peter Hodgson happened to be at that party and he noticed all the adults playing with this cup. And in fact, one of the people that he was standing next to was a toy store, a toy store owner uh, by the name of Ruth Falgatter. Now, Falgatter and Hodgson decided, hey, look at this. We might have something here. So Hodgson suggested to Falgatter that they buy some of the stuff and sell it as a toy in her Christmas catalog. And considering that no one had ever come up with use for it, what the heck? So although Peter Hodgson at the time was $12,000 in debt, he borrowed $147, bought 21 pounds of the stuff from GE, and they put it uh, in Falgatter's Christmas catalog. Gup outsold everything in the toy catalog that year. Now, Hodgson was sure they had a winner on their hands, but Falgatter disagreed. Even with all those robust sales, he thought, eh, it's just a one-time shot. But Peter Hodgson decided this was a great idea and he was going to market this stuff on his own. So with his share of the profits, he hired a few Yale students and along with his own three kids, they separated the stuff into half-ounce little balls and inserted them into, yes, colored pull-apart plastic eggs. And after rejecting 15 different names, you know it, Hodgson finally decided that he was going to call the stuff Silly Putty. Is that the end of the story? It is not. In February 1950, Hodgson took his creation to the New York Toy Show. Now, every single person he spoke to there, every consultant, every advisor, told him, give up on the idea. It's not going anywhere. But he was persistent. He was driven. He really thought he had something. So he got the eggs into a couple of big stores, Neiman Marcus and Doubleday. Uh, And it was there at the Doubleday Bookshop that something very interesting happened. Uh, Again, the gup sat on shelves. Nothing really happened. In August of 1950, a writer for the New Yorker stumbled upon an egg of the stuff inside the Doubleday Bookstore in Manhattan, really smitten with it, playing with it, having fun with it. He wrote a glowing review of it in the Talk of the Town section of the New Yorker. Peter Hodgson, who at that time was uh, destitute just about, Never had to worry about money ever again. He received 250,000 orders in three days. Over the years, Peter Hodgson's little toy became part of Americana. Incredibly successful. How successful? In 1977, he sold his company to a toy manufacturer named Biddy and Smith. And according to Biddy and Smith, 
1987, they sold 2 million eggs a year. These days, it is about 6 million eggs a year. And to date, more than 300 million eggs of Silly Putty have been sold around the world. And Peter Hodgson, the once destitute Peter Hodgson, who had that big idea in 1976, he passed away, leaving an estate of $140 million. And now you know what happened before you heard of them. Small Business Success is brought to you by Greatland, the W-2 and 1099 tax specialist. Go to greatland.com to learn more. We are back and we uh, have been, as you know, talking about uh, startups. And I am really happy to have a perfect guest on that subject with us today. My my friend, uh, Tim Berry. Tim started out uh, running a company called Palo Alto Software, uh, creating uh, the one and only Business Plan Pro, the best business planning software I've ever seen. Uh, and he's moved on to social media and a lot of other things. So, Tim, great to have you. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Steve. And Palo Alto Software is still... Uh, my love and my company, but I mean, not to, I, I'm in the very nice situation of having a great management team that's uh, doing well and generating great numbers. New product called Live Plan, by the way, a web app for uh, everybody runs in your browser. So I do think planning. that that management team is 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 uh, headed up by your daughter, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Sabrina Parsons is CEO. Yes, that's right. And it's been six years now, so it's. I just the correction is, I, I'm still in love with Palo Alto Software, the company that I started and that I built to, oh, about ten million dollars sales and fifty employees without investors. But yeah, you're right. I'm doing a lot of other things now because I can. It's yeah, the luxury of being able to do that. Fantastic. So you know what? So let's we we've been talking today's show about uh, startups and. Um, well, you know startups. Uh, what 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 drew you to the entrepreneurial life? Let's just go with that to start with. The the ironic thing, Steve, is I left a good job as a vice president in Creative Strategies International, not because I had a vision of something I was going to create, but rather because I wanted to do the kind of work that I liked. And I needed more money, and I thought I could earn more money on my own than what I was getting on salary. So it, my case wasn't the classic, uh, I'm going to create something. It was, I want to determine what I do during the day, and I, I want to make enough money to support the family with it. You know, I really think that's accurate. I think there are two kinds of entrepreneurs. There's those people who have an idea for a business and they just can't let it go and they're going to do that thing. And that means starting their own business. Like like um, Jeff Bezos when he came up with his idea for Amazon, right? That he was going to create that. But there's lots of other people like you or me uh, who just wanted to be their own boss. You know, I was a, ta- I was a lousy employee actually. So <laughs> I, I couldn't do anything else but be an entrepreneur. The, the thing with me that I, I enjoy after the fact is... I liked doing the planning and the forecasting and the market research, but I found myself as a vice president in that firm supervising others. And I liked the work. I didn't like reviewing the work for others. And I didn't particularly like being a boss. So it it had a lot to do with lifestyle, but also money. I tended to work a lot on the weekends and after dinner. And there was the... 
thought that, boy, I'd like to make more money when I do more work and not have a fixed income. Uh so what do you think uh, people need to know about startups that they may not know? Someone is listening to the show and they're going to start a business. And uh, one thing I do know is when people get that starry-eyed look in their eye, you know, they tend to fall under the ether, as my brother says, when someone's buying real estate from him. Uh, and that's kind of dangerous. Uh, oh, absolutely. And the whole, there's so much dangerous mythology in startups, quite frankly, that uh, well, People, we, we, the, the world of startup advice is full of survivor bias. So you listen to me because I survived, right? But we never talk to the people who failed and why they failed. And we build up my uh, most disliked myth is the idea that it's about you, your passion, you know, if you just stick to it. And it's really <laughs> not. It's, it's about the value that you give to your customers. And I don't care how much you're doing what you love. If you're not doing something that's really beneficial to somebody else enough that they'll pay for it, then you can do what you love forever and you're going to fail as a business. And I think that's like a terribly dangerous myth that has a lot of people banging their heads against brick walls over a long term without the right level of chance of success you know that's so great I, I mentioned in my book the small business bible this idea that you know well if you love 18th century flemish architecture that's awesome and you could be passionate about it but if nobody wants to buy your expertise for 18th century flemish architecture you don't have a business you have a hobby it's all you have so it is you know being loving something you do that's going to keep you going during the hard times but uh you know serving the markets was going to create a business i think absolutely yes and i think we undervalue that and that whole the myth of passion and persistence is one to be called out as dangerously misunderstood so, and it does i mean passion and persistence helps because building a business is hard and there will be those times when oh damn this is close to hell so passion and persistence helps it's what we call a necessary but not sufficient condition because that alone won't get it just exactly as you just said steve i totally agree with that are there other myths of startups that you think are especially dangerous people misunderstand the business plan and uh there's a very dangerous myth out there now that treats the business plan as if it were some kind of a document or term paper that you you have to have and after you've got it you heave a huge sigh of relief thank god that's over you put it in a drawer somewhere and never look at it again and that myth really undermines the truth of business planning which is a a, a constant steering function it's reviewing and revising all the time understanding that your business is changing, the world is changing, and your plan is changing, and it's still valuable to you. And the real danger there is, oh, that stupid, dumb term paper, formal business plan is not valuable if not used right, but people then think that business planning isn't valuable. So that's so interesting. That really is different than what most people think. Most people think you know, it's a necessary evil, and I've got to do it uh, if I want to go get a SBA loan or something, and they probably don't ever... Uh, consult it ever again and what you're saying is it, it ideally it should be like a, a guide a living document that kind of thing yes and the straw man business plan that everybody 
hates or fears gets in the way of real business planning where the plan is just big enough to run the business. You know it's going to be obsolete in three or four weeks. You're not going to spend a lifetime doing it as if it were some work of art. You're going to be constantly revising and a little bit at a time always and this is how you optimize your business and manage better because you're setting steps and then you're tracking results and you're revising according to results and and always trying to control your long-term direction and manage your short-term tasks. That's business planning at its best. But what about those parts of your business plan that you just don't get? Like, I think it's true that a lot of small businesses, a lot of entrepreneurs don't really understand the numbers very well. Uh, the projections, those kind of things. So what do people do? Is that Does live plan uh, help with that? Or how does someone you know, overcome the parts oh, of their plan they don't understand? Absolutely. And I mean, disclosure, I'm talking about a product that I conceived and it's the right. uh, descendant of Business Plan Pro. So I'm totally biased. But always the vision of business planning that I wanted was to make a tool that dealt with the parts of it that were that lent themselves to being a tool. So the financials do, and and you can actually go from reasonable assumptions that everybody has to cash flow projections and profit and loss and balance sheet that bankers will understand using step-by-step, and that sort of a tool helps everybody. And, Steve, at that point, you you realize then that we're not trying to make canned rehash business planning. We're making business planning that takes the parts that are productizable and helps people with that and outlines and formatting, but never really core content. You know, I was at a um, an event earlier this week with Dun & Bradstreet. I was hosting a, a panel on traditional lending and I had four bankers on the stage with me. And, uh, you know, the one thing they all agreed on, although they agreed on a lot of things, but one of them was don't use phony baloney numbers you know when you come to us have a legitimate plan that makes sense because not not only can we see through the numbers but we also think you don't know what you're doing if you inflate your numbers to try and impress us yeah and uh, i mean this is there is a, a real value in the right kind of planning and the right kind of tool because cash flow is absolutely critical just as everybody says and profits don't guarantee cash flow because of the magic of finance and accounting. You can be profitable and bankrupt at the same time if all your profits have been in, say, leftover in inventory or they're in accounts receivable. So this is critical to business. And you don't have the luxury, if you're running a business, of not really knowing every day where your money is, where it's coming from, and where it's going. And that's cash flow. That's cash flow. And I guess the other thing that people uh, really put a lot of time into uh, in business and in startups these days is social media. Uh, and I think there are some foul, you know, some dangers there. I mean, social media, and I know you're into it heavily right now, and, and we all love our social media, right? It's the, a business, a basic business tenant right now. But, boy, you really have to do it right and not uh, waste your time when you do it, I think. Oh, there's so much misinformation. I so agree with you. And it's, it's developing every day. So it's very hard to make uh, solid rules about this. But what I, I am totally convinced that the idea of 
a new kind of relationship with the world and the market because of technology, meaning that we don't control our brand like the old days with what we say in our literature and our advertising and our collateral and our website. Our customers control our brand, and that's whether we want that like that or not. So I start with social media as people engaging with their opinions out there, and it's happening whether you and your business acknowledge and participate or not. Your brand is being managed by the people who care enough one way or the other to share it with others. And that fundamental principle makes social media an important long-term business tool, reality, task, what have you. So you've created a, uh, a new site I see called Eugene Social. It's eugene-social.com. Can you tell us about that and how that plays into this? I love social media. I have always been small business and startups. And as Palo Alto Software is more and more managed very, very well, not requiring a lot of my time, I believe in having the luxury, in my case, of doing what I like to do. So Eugene Social is doing social media for businesses that want help and are looking at the long term. They're, they're using us to have a competent social media stream done by somebody they can trust. Oh. And us is me. And I have four daughters and another <laughs> daughter who isn't running Palo Alto Software, who also loves social media. And we don't advise people how to do it. We do it for them, very collaborative with them. But we take the time so they can run their business. So I think that's really brilliant because we hear so much about social media and, and most small businesses know they're supposed to be doing it. The learning curve is pretty high. The The chance for, you know, I think wasting a lot of time and not getting results is really high. Um, and yet, if you do it right, the ability to make money, which I think is the ROI of social media if you do it right, uh, is also really high. So if, if you can team up with someone and do it, help them, help them and do it for them, I think you're on to something with uh, a potentially huge market. Oh, well, thank you for that. And, and it comes to another one that we've been talking about, myths. Another myth is that every business owner should be doing social media. And having been a business owner for most of my adult life, I don't have you as the business owner. You don't have the time. You know, it's like okay, we're not infinite. You know, at some point, yeah, but I need to keep track of books, and I need to do this, and I need to fulfill, and whatever. There's another fallacy. Every business should be engaged in social media. Yes, but your time is limited, not infinite. So that's that, that's why we're we're doing it and liking it. So fantastic. Um, we're just about out of time, but I do, I do have to ask you the $64,000 question. If you were to share uh, with people your, you know, the most important thing you've learned in business, uh, the biggest lesson that you've taken away in your many years of uh, starting and running and growing your own business, you know, what, what do you think, uh, not to put you on the spot or anything, but, uh, you know, what do you think the most important thing you take, you've learned is that you think other people need to know? Well, and I appreciate that because it's important to me. I've come to realize that managing expertise and advice and information is 
critical to good business and we need to understand that we're going to make mistakes. We need information and opinions and expertise, but in the end, every business is unique. Every business owner is unique. And the best is not to just stick your head in the sand and ignore everything, but do empower yourself and trust yourself to evaluate and consider everything you hear and read, whether or not it applies in your case. Business is all case by case. There are no general rules. Fantastic. Hey, Tim, if people want to find you, where should they go? Timberry.com. That's Tim like Timothy, Berry like strawberry. Timberry.com is a good hub of what I'm doing. Blog.timberry.com is all my blogging. And you mentioned Eugene-Social.com. And, of course, LivePlan. We also mentioned LivePlan.com, the web app for business planning. Tim Berry is our friend, and uh, the other thing we share in common is we both flood California for the great Northwest. So great to see you. Great to talk to you. I hope I get to see you soon, my friend. Me too. Thank you, Steve. Good to see you. Bye. Our show is brought to you by our friends at Greatland, the W-2 and 1099 tax specialist. And right now, it is tax season. You can save 15% on any W-2 or 1099 product by going to greatland.com and using the code V12 at checkout. So save 15%, go to greatland.com and use the code V12. You'll save money and you'll get your taxes done. And that is this week's show. Thanks for stopping by. And stop by again next week for some more small business success. I'm Steve Strauss and you can always visit me at the selfemployed.com.